Hello and welcome to Cage Club episode 11. We're talking about Moonstruck from 1987 today, starring Cher and Nicolas Cage. With me, as always, is Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And with us today, for the second time in Cage Club, we have a guest. And this guest today is Eric Anderson, uh, someone that neither of us have ever met in person, but a mutual friend of ours recommended him. We're, we're more than happy to have him here. We're, we're, we're overjoyed. Welcome Thanks. to Cage Club. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be uh, locked in the cage here with you. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. So now when I asked you what movie you wanted to do, really quickly it seemed like you, you chose Moonstruck. Why did you want to do Moonstruck so bad? To be honest, uh, I've not seen a lot of Nicolas Cage movies, and I just see it, I just saw Moonstruck for the first time about two or three months ago. My fiancé really wanted me to watch it. And at first I was hesitant, but uh, it quickly became a very favorite movie of mine. No, I've never seen this. Mike, have you seen this before? I forget what your answer to that question is. I'm quite familiar with this movie, to be honest. Um, I remember it because my parents loved it when it came out, so I always sort of knew about it growing up. Didn't get around to watching it till I was out of high school. Yeah, since then, I've seen it a couple times. I'm pretty familiar with it. And I'm part Italian, so, you know, I kind of relate to that part of the movie. Yeah, I feel like growing up in New Jersey or New York... This this movie is so Italian and so Jewish and so New York <laughs> that I feel like a lot of people that we know, it seems like a movie that a lot of their parents would just love. There's like a comical amount of Italian spoken. Yeah. I mean, it's all sort of a casual phrases, and none of it's subtitled. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's sort of <laughs> very stereotypical. And, you know, I guess nowadays it might be borderline um, racist. <laughs> I don't see it that way at all. It's played mostly for comedic effect. And I think <laughs> to show, you know, the old world in the new world, right? Like these old world Italian values, you know, clashing with the modern age. Mm-hmm. Everybody lives together. We have at least three generations of shares family living in her house and you know if she had had a kid with her husband before he died i feel like we would have had at least four generations there everybody stays together family is the most important thing and that's what drives a lot of the conflict and a lot of the uh plot of this movie yeah i I completely agree you know the first time i watched it a lot of the comedy comes from how stereotypically italian this family is but i just watched it again two nights ago uh to get ready for this and my fiance and i are both italian I believe she's half Italian. I'm a little under half. Watching it again, it was, it's it's a very accurate depiction of <laughs> at least our Italian families. Uh, I know Cher's father in the film, there's a specific scene where he's talking about uh, plumbing. And I swear to God, it is exactly my uh, future father-in-law. <laughs> the way that he talks, the lines he gives, his uh, uh, hand expressions, it's completely true. Another thing that like stands out to me in terms of stereotypical Italianness is that the first time that Cher and Nick Cage meet up, and we'll go, we'll start at the beginning, and we'll go, we'll go back through all this. But the first time they meet up and they go to his apartment, she just starts cooking for him. Like <laughs> she, she doesn't ask. She yeah. just, you know, goes in there and just cooks him a steak. Like there's so many things, like you were saying, that it's it's sort of stereotypical, but also funny because it's so true to life. These are things that people actually do. Everything is here for a reason because it's all based in some sort of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost not since The Godfather has a more accurate depiction <laughs> of Italian-Americans been portrayed on film. But uh, no, I think that's what led to you know most of its success is you know how genuine the film comes across, you know, and, and how sweet and ultimately tender the morals are and everything like that. I mean, it's not bashing anyone or anything. It's just showing everything. It's a whole, the whole movie is like a big misunderstanding. So it's very much in the vein of like an Italian comedy or opera. So the movie starts, and like right away, 
you know what you're in for because the movie starts, the song Amore starts playing, and it's just shots of the New York landscape. So right there you have Italian, you have New York, you have love movie. Like before you even see anybody or hear any lines of dialogue, you know sort of exactly what kind of movie you're in for. Very iconic and very good shorthand to sort of settle you right into the mood of, uh, of the rest of this film. Love is the major theme. Right, and um, music plays a big role in the rest of the movie, so it's pretty befitting that the opening song is a song about love. Now, I have a very important question for both of you, and I guess we'll start with Eric and see what he thinks, because he just did, uh, I would imagine, not too long ago, or sometime recently, propose to his girlfriend. (laughs) Is this the worst proposal in history, or just one of the worst? Uh, It's terrible, and... This is the first thing I thought of when I was watching the movie. I was taking some notes, and I just could not stop myself from writing the worst proposal scene I've ever seen. Because it's so awkward. It's a proposal, and neither of them love each other. It's out of no. uh, just because of how easy it is. And he's just shocked when she asks him to get on his knees. And when she asks for his pinky ring, he's shocked that she'd even ask for something that he likes. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very funny scene, but you know that this marriage is just not really meant to be. I mean, I think the star of this scene is Bobo, the waiter. Oh, <laughs> Bobo is like the greatest character in this movie. He's just, he's, he's, he never stops moving. He's all energy and all excitement and all about just love in general. Like, he just loves love. So, Mike, what about you? Do you think that was the, the worst proposal in history? Do you think that was just sort of one of the worst? Well, he, he like, jumps the gun. He's intending to propose to her uh, during dessert. He just, like, blurts out, will you marry me? And, you know, she's like, eh. she She's totally unfazed by it, but, like, she's very by the book. She's like, ring, please, you know? And he's like, uh, and uses the pinky ring and gets down. It's so funny how he gets down on his knee and sort of goes out of frame. He becomes so ridiculous in this. But it's isn't he just marrying her because, like, his mother's dying? And if his mother finds out that he's getting married, she might not die? So it's like this bizarre marriage of convenience. It's really weird. He doesn't even get down on one knee. He gets down, I think, on both knees. Yeah. He's just sort of oh, kneeling yeah. there. And one of the other restaurant patrons is like, is he praying? Like, it's so <laughs> it's so bizarre and just overtly comical that it's, it's delightful. I think the only person who would have given a worse proposal is the dad from Frasier who was in the in the same restaurant yes <laughs> I was like what the <laughs> the rules of the wedding are that before they get married his mother has to die and I don't know if he's proposing like to keep his mother alive or if he sort of he can only have one woman in his life and his mother is above all else you know what I mean like sort of that kind of stereotypical yeah. Italian thing yeah I think it's the latter uh, because he generally seems like he wants to marry her at first the car ride home is what little romance was in that scene is gone and they're arguing already over like when the wedding's gonna be it's like I gotta wait till my mother's dead no more than two weeks I'm sorry yeah there there's something that again comes back to like the Italianness of the mother and the son connection. Mm. You see that a lot, and again in The Godfather and everything. I mean, it comes up, and yeah, I think you're right, Joey. I think it's just this like he wants to get married because he knows the mom's going to die, and he needs to replace the mother figure in his life, and he's going to do that with his wife. And Cher seems totally willing to like basically mother anyone in this movie. She's always acting like a mother. To everybody cooking for people caring for people, telling people what to do. 
you know, when he's over in Italy, when he, so he proposes to her, and then it seems like right away, I'm not, I'm not sure, it might be the same night, it might be the next day, he flies to Sicily just to be with his dying mother, like, he's like, alright, got the proposals out of the way, now I gotta go watch my mother die, so I can come back and marry this woman. It's, it's so weird that, you know, it's a love story, it starts off between them, even though there's really no love between them, at least not mutual love. And then the real love story doesn't start for 25 minutes in. Like, it's, it's such a weird way to start a rom-com. The, the man who proposes just leaves. And he's not back in America until, like, 20 minutes left to go in the movie. Like, he's yeah. out of the picture for so long. Yeah, I mean, it does a good job, though, of setting up Cher and her predicament. Because that ultimately is it's her journey and that the film is trying to show. So, you know, we get to see... Like you said, like we find out that she, her husband died. She's, you know, childless, and she's not in love with her fiance, and you know, she's just willing to accept her lot in life. Everything just sort of goes according to plan until she runs into her fiance's brother, you know. And it's like that Cupid arrow syndrome almost, where the entire movie shifts. Not just that her husband died; he was hit by a bus. <laughs> like it's a very brutal, sudden way to go out. And she's convinced that the reason he died and all the bad luck in her life was because their marriage was so unconventional. They didn't get married in front of family and friends. They went down to City Hall. She, it, it just seemed like a rushed sort of thing, and she wants to make sure that this time she does it right because she's very superstitious. She's very concerned with making sure that everything that happens with this marriage goes according to plan, whatever that plan may be to sort of reverse her luck or bad luck in life. When she drops her now fiancé off at the airport, she runs into this old lady who, oh. who, like, puts a, who puts a curse on the plane. Yeah, her sister's because on her, the plane. <laughs> her sister's on the plane who 50 years earlier had stolen this woman's boyfriend, or not even if they were dating, but the, this, this, this old woman was in love with a guy and her sister stole him. And then it turned out that she never really loved this guy. She just did it to spite her sister. And so this old woman puts a curse on the plane. And I thought, is this plane going to crash? Because like, I knew that the love story was between Cher and Nicolas Cage. But no, the plane's fine. It's just like an, a weird one-off scene. If you never hear from that woman again. It's, it's interesting because uh, the scene gives you a really funny line where Cher's just, oh, I don't believe in curses. And the woman's like, ah, neither do I. Uh, it's funny, but... <laughs> Shares all is, is she's very superstitious in the movie. Yeah, and what uh, what the woman is cursing the plane over is that her sister slept with her fiance, or slept around, and Cher's sort of gonna do the same thing to her fiance, right? right? She's gonna sleep around on him. So it's almost this bizarre foreshadowing that we're about to see, you know, a lot of love and misfortune come coming ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I actually watching it for the second time, I did notice a lot of foreshadowing that I didn't catch the first time, obviously. And that scene was one of them. Uh, another one was just a few minutes before that scene when her uh, fiance takes off in the plane and mentions, oh, could you please invite my brother? I haven't seen him in five years. And uh, he puts his hand up, gives the number five, and he takes a look at his hand, and he uh, like, kind of like, uh, oh. And you don't know what that means. I never caught it the first time, but it was pretty interesting. I, actually, I was actually reading during, I think it was during Peggy Sue Got Married, Nicolas Cage's character says something in the lines of, like, I'll do anything to stay with you, Peggy Sue. Like, I'll even give up my arm. Oh, and yeah. then here he is, handless. <laughs> in Raising Arizona, he shoots Leonard the Outlaw Biker in the hand. <laughs> we got lots of hand things going on. Throughout the movie, there's really sort of two overarching senses of something. There's, there's love in the air throughout the whole thing, 
and there's death in the air throughout the whole thing. And even though nobody dies, everybody's constantly talking about death, fearing death. Cher's fiancé is over in Italy waiting for his mother to die. These two very different, or I guess maybe not that different, I mean, they're both the strongest emotion drivers or whatever you want to say. These two things are over the whole movie, and they always just sort of hang there. And so everything that happens is based on one of these two things, either love or death. Yeah, everyone seems to be motivated. A lot of the men seem to be motivated by death, right? Like, the, the, a lot of... Um, everyone's... You find out, like, everyone's cheating. Like, even Cher's dad uh, is fooling around on his mom. There's all this stuff going on, and in the play, it's about a lot of death. One really big quote, and I think this is sort of... This is what gives the, the, the movie's name meaning... It's pretty early on, there's like a really, really powerful full moon. Like, it's very low to the horizon. And someone says, the moon brings the woman to the man. And it seems like the moon, moonstruck, the moon is causing all these people to sort of fall in love with everyone. Sort of the ultimate aphrodisiac. The moon being so close is messing with everybody's equilibrium and causing all these people to fall in love immediately with whoever they happen to run into. There is a lot of talk about men being wolves in this movie, too, and the wolf is connected to the moon sure. in literature. Uh, yeah, there is definitely this, you know, uh, to go along with the superstitious bend, there's like this supernatural feeling regarding the moon that everyone just sort of believes that it's this magical thing that, that brings people together, and it does in this movie. You know, that is very much what it's played for. Before Cher's fiancé leaves for Italy... He gives her one job. He says, call my brother. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I want him at the wedding. And you don't really find out more than that at that time. And Cher calls the brother, and he basically says, I have nothing to say to him. I have nothing to say to you. I don't want him to go to the wedding. And then she shows up to his place of work, and we don't see him or hear from him for 25 minutes. Like, it's really, in terms of the, the structure of the movie, it's the whole first act, he's not even in it. She shows up at their Italian bakery, meat shop, cheese shop, general Italian food store, and goes down into the cellar, comes into Cage. And what I really like about the way that they introduce him, it's sort of reminiscent of Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, you, you don't see his face for a while. That when he's talking on the phone to share... You just see his back. And even when she goes down there, he's got his back to the camera. And so he's this man of mystery, this man that she really knows nothing about and that we don't know anything about. And it's just sort of a cool little visual touch to keep him protected or keep him separated from the rest of the movie for a little bit longer. And he's very foreboding. Like, I think the first time you see him, he's uh, covered in ash and sweating and he's shoveling coal into an oven. And it's very, like... Who is this guy? He looks terrifying. What is Cher going to find when she goes down? And what she finds is a bread baker seemingly lost his mind and definitely lost his hand and his bride. It's such like a flimsy excuse, and that's sort of what Cher points out, that Cage's brother, Danny Aiello, who's now in Sicily, he came down to ask Nicolas Cage to make a loaf of bread. And Nicholas Cage looked away and got his hand caught in the what in the bread slicer, slicer right? Yeah. And lost his hand. And he he just he's so upset about it and just screaming about it. Five years ago, I was engaged to be married, and uh, and Johnny came in here, and he ordered bread for me. And I said, Oh, okay, some bread. <laughs> and and I put my hand in the slicer, and it got caught because I wasn't paying attention. The slicer chewed off my hand. <laughs> it's funny because when my fiance found out about it, but she found out that I'd been maimed, she left me for another man. 
That's the bad blood between you and Johnny? Yes, that's it. Yeah, but I, that's not Johnny's fault. No freaking monument to justice! I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away, and forget? And just to add to the the conflict and the heightened tension of the scene, he's saying, Bring me the big knife. <laughs> Give me the big knife. I'm gonna kill myself. <laughs> I'm gonna cut my throat so you could tell my brother on his wedding day. And he finally walks away, like Cher leaves it with it, leaves with him, and there's just this store employee there and she's like, I love him, but he can he can never love again now that he's lost his bride. <laughs> like he's just like the saddest it, it's really like the saddest character he's played, like the most heartbroken he lost everything and just doesn't want to live, really, until he meets Cher. Yeah. I don't think there could be anything more romantic for, by, uh, for Cher like, to see, than to see him wallowing in his own personal hell that he's created, you know? And it's, like, <laughs> it's almost like she, she sees him and like, can't even believe what she's found. Like, like, this is exactly what she's looking for, almost. I don't know. They, they seem like parallels of each other in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah, I just love how he's down in the basement and it looks like a dungeon. He's, like, shoveling coal into the fire, which makes it, like, seem like a hellish landscape to a degree. Everyone's sweltering down there. She's just like taking it so well. Like, all right, this guy's nuts, but like most of the men are nuts. Like, I'm just going to wait for him to rant and then I'll ask him, you know, where he lives, if he wants to go get some coffee, you know, talk some more. I think my uh, favorite scene, our favorite line in the movie is in that scene where, uh, you know, he's telling Cher the story and Cher is just, that's not really a good excuse. That's not really his fault. And he just blurts out, I ain't no monument to justice. (laughs) (laughs) Right, like like anything to justify his actions, right? What this scene really proves, aside from introducing us to his character, is it proves that there really could be no bigger difference between two people than between Cage and his brother. That his brother is this sort of wishy-washy, not committed to anything, and Cage is a singularly focused, fully committed this is my life, this is how I'm going to live, determinedness. The, the, the gap between the two brothers is miles apart. Cage pretty much just believes his life is over. You know, he's like waiting to die down there, making bread. He figures he's had his one shot and it's over and it's his brother's fault. And then his brother is just like, kind of like a big baby almost. <laughs> like, doesn't even know what he wants in life, doesn't know what to do, is, isn't even running his own life. She finally calms him down a little bit and they go to his house and that's when she just walks in and cooks him a steak <laughs> And they, they argue over that. He's like, I'm not hungry. She says, well, you're going to eat anyway. He's like, all right, I better have it well done. She's like, you're going to eat it bloody and you're going to like it. He just does. Like He just gives in. They keep sort of fighting. And then all of a sudden, again, sort of stereotypical Italian, flips the table like a madman and then just passionately grabs her and starts kissing her. Passions boil over. They, you know, they are going 12 rounds with each other and they just met. I don't know. It's like watching fireworks while I'm watching this. You see Cher and Cage are both like firing on all cylinders in this scene. I really buy it, you know, like when he gets up, like there is power in his emotion and, you know, they go at it and she's like, wait, wait, wait. And, and then she kisses him back and then they take it to the bed. Son of a bitch. Where are you taking me? To the bed. Oh, God. Okay, I don't care. I don't care. Take me. Take me to the bed. I don't care about it. I don't believe this is happening. 
Yeah, and, and that's a more it plays again, because of course it does. Um, oh, and this is actually the scene where you were talking about earlier, that Cher calls him a wolf. He's, she says, you're a wolf. And he says he's a wolf without a foot, referring to his hand, you know, how he chewed it off for the price of freedom, that he was able to escape this life and sort of set out on his own path because he lost his hand. And she says she's a bride without a head. He calls her the bride without the head, the headless bride. Okay. I think he says, like, um, my brother cut off my hand because of something, and, like, what's he going to do if he distracts you? You know, cut off your head? You're the headless bride. That's what you are. (laughs) And so it's after this one night of passion, because they do ultimately have sex, and she stays over, and they wake up, and she's, like, immediately regretful. But on the other hand, Nicolas Cage is like, I'm in love with you. Like, that... Like this five, last five years, I haven't been able to love anything, but I love you. Like this is, this is what I want. Yeah, it's funny that she would slap him and tell him to snap out of it when he just snapped out of it because of her. You know, like he finally snapped out of his funk and like he feels alive again and like purpose and all that. And and I love that he didn't even realize almost until after the fact that he was stealing his brother's fiance away from him you know like they start going at it and then she's like oh johnny and he's like oh yeah oh yeah and then she's like take it out on me what about johnny you're mad at him take it out on me take your revenge out on me leave nothing left for him to marry leave nothing but the skin over my bones all right all right there will be nothing left take it all out on me (laughs) she's done with him but he's in love with her and he wants her to go to the opera with him, and she says no, but she eventually agrees if, if, he, if she goes to the opera with him, he'll leave her alone forever. And he says, I love two things. I love you, and I love the opera. It, it's so weird to have this like manual labor, physical, physical worker, baker, coal shoveler, the, the only thing he really loved in life is the opera. Like, it's such a nice, weird character quirk. I I like that a lot. It is interesting. To me, it kind of makes sense because of how passionate Cage is in the movie. His character, like you said, for five years, he's been tormented in this uh, this bakery basement, lamenting over his hand and his uh, losing his fiance. His his favorite opera is uh, La Boheme, which is a an extremely intense love story that duality is that he's just a very emotional person he's a lover he's finally able to love again yeah i was always thinking that uh, maybe his grandfather always played opera or something like that and it just sort of stuck with him and or came back or he remembered it after his fiance left him he was just like i'm gonna i'm just gonna just dive into opera and be as melodramatic as possible now and just <laughs> embrace my embrace how dark I, I can get but even though Cher wants to be done with Nicolas cage she goes and she basically at what point in the movie do you think she falls in love with him does she fall in love with him during that first scene like when they're in the basement or does it happen when they're at the apartment because at some point she switches over from Danny Aiello to Nicholas Cage like when do you think that that transition happens I definitely think she falls in love with him during that kitchen scene she might have feelings and then the passion overwhelms them he makes the first move and at first she pulls back and she says wait 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 but then she's the one that continues kissing him it's the, uh, the, the sobriety of the situation the next morning where she flips out but that night there's a very romantic moon scene that uh, kind of crosses over three different couples in the movie, and she's one of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, She obviously feels something that she won't admit the next day. I think she's trying to suppress it because she's afraid of, because she's superstitious. She's trying to suppress all of these feelings that would make her relationship abnormal. Would you say that she was moonstruck that night? I think so. 
<laughs> Even though she doesn't, at least outwardly, she wants to be done with Nicolas Cage, she still goes out and gets her hair done, mm-hmm. gets her gets made up, goes and buys a new dress, really pretty woman's herself yeah. to go on the state with Nicolas Cage, and, and she shows up, and they both tell each other that they're beautiful, and then they go inside to enjoy the opera. Well, she's almost in, like, a state of denial throughout the movie. Like, almost everyone is in, in life. But, I mean, she hasn't really... It doesn't seem like she really grieved her husband, right? She just sort of, like, chalks it up to to bad luck. She doesn't really seem to be able to control herself. She's just sort of, like... She's like, ah, oh, I don't like you. But then she... You're right. She goes out and she gets her hair done, you know? It's almost just, like, she's unwilling to admit to herself that she's in love with him. But her, her mind and her body are, like, pulling her in two different directions. And when we find Cher at the beginning of the movie, I think it's eight or ten years after her husband died she's had time to grieve and i feel like at this point of her life she's just convinced that she'll never love again because the one man she actually loved died in a freak accident and even when her mother asks her oh do you love uh johnny she's like oh no but you know he's a nice guy so i've like she's kind of just letting herself get married because it's the thing to do, which is want to live alone or grow yeah. old by herself. Yeah, when Nick Cage comes back into the picture, she's trying to convince herself, no, I can never love again because I already ha- I already had that. And I really wonder if they if she wants kids or not because they don't really talk about it much. That it doesn't seem that she's getting married to have kids, but I think she's getting married again because, like you said, she doesn't want to grow old alone. But it's also just the thing to do, and she just sort of feels like she's supposed to. She needs to be with someone even if that someone is not someone she loves. Yeah, she, she, she mentioned at some point that her husband wanted to have a kid right away, but she wanted to wait, and that he died before they actually have a kid. So she kind of brings up the fact, like, well, I lost my husband, I lost my any, any chance of having a child. She kind of mentions it in the fact, like, well, maybe if we had a kid and then he died, I wouldn't be so lonely. I think loneliness is a big theme in this movie, and it's not necessarily just being alone alone but looking for something to give you a little bit more. It's like everybody's just sort of looking for, or like craving human connection. Yeah, and there seems to be a lot of the um, it's never too late theme going on too. You know, like you mentioned Cher's mom was like, you know, it's like never too late to have kids. And Cher doesn't also realize it's never too late to fall in love again, you know? And, you know, you could you have your whole life ahead of you. You're not as old as you think, you know? And it can happen again. And she even says one time when Nick Cage is like, you know, I'm here, I'm here now. And she's like, well, you're late. She even is it's still in denial at that point. But, you know, it turns out that it really isn't ever too late to find the person you love, to change your job, to move out of town, to, to do whatever. And so even when they're at the opera, and I think it's, it's really sort of by this point that you know that she knows this is a better, better man to be with than her fiancé, but she's still not really giving in. And Nicolas Cage says to her, Everything seems like nothing to me now. I guess I want you in my bed. I don't care if I burn in hell. I don't care if you burn in hell. The past and the future is a, a joke to me now. I see that they're nothing. I see they ain't here. The only thing that's here is you and me. Going back to that metaphor you were saying before about the bread basement is sort of hell, but he doesn't care if that's the life he has to live as long as he's with Cher it'll all be worth it. Yeah, it's it's really amazing how, like, the story only takes place over, like, three days, and you just see how she struggles against, like, this guy, and she knows, like, they're just meant for each other, you know? I think it's even 
that's just they they both lost their fiancés you know it's been over five years just all these parallels to them and it's just great because you know she just gets beaten down like by him almost like emotionally until she just like realizes that like why is she even bothering fighting herself like he's he's clearly the better guy he's clearly meant for her her dad didn't even like johnny and like her dad when her dad meets him he like immediately approves and he doesn't say so but you could just tell he has no issue with this guy whatsoever so it's like everybody knows it's like everybody's like you know he's the one he's the one and like just she's the last one to give in to herself i feel like everybody in this movie is happy and not happy at the same time, sort of about everything. And I feel like they would all be a lot happier if they just... Because everybody has good things in their life. If they were just willing to accept those good things and appreciate them for what they are, they would all be a lot better off. I mean, obviously, that's not a good movie if everybody just is happy all the time. But everybody has these things, and it's sort of by the end of the movie, they figure out what they have, and everything sort of comes back together and they all end on a positive note. Everybody's fighting themselves because they're not either ready or willing to accept the way that things are around them. Yeah, and even the dad, right? The, the dad is cheating, and then at the end, you know, he does, his wife's like, you know, what's wrong with you? I was a good wife. And he's like, you know what? You're right. Like, that's how it came across <laughs> to me, right? And then mom tries, to, she's like, you know, everyone's fooling around. Like, she's going to go out, and she has an uh, impromptu date with Fraser's dad, and uh, she's not even like trying to fool around she's just like is this what it's like is this you know she's just trying to understand why her husband or why men roam and cheat and stuff like that why are men wolves and everything and she kind of is like you know john mahoney's not a terrible guy once you get to know him and everything she's not going to bring him up she's got her scruples and her morals and stuff i don't know i just felt that that was a very interesting scene because she's like i gotta see what this is all about and ultimately she's like it's not for me you know she's like the one person all along that sort of understands, you know, what you got is the best thing. The grass isn't always greener. Yeah, and that that's what I liked a lot about Rose, uh, Cher's mom in the movie. Her, her whole character arc is she realizes she's being cheated on. She's always loved and continues to love her husband. She, so she, she goes on this, this journey and asks all these people, to, why do men cheat? And it's just like she's looking for an answer that explains it succinctly, but also gives her a reason to stay with her husband. So it's like, oh, it's because men fear death. That's the answer that she wants to hear. Once she gets that from somebody else, she's like, yeah, that's exactly it. So she can kind of forgive her husband because it's, it's, it's almost not his fault because he's just he's afraid of death. He's acting out, but he really has something great at home. And I just have to remind him that I'm here and I will always love you. I feel like that was the, the end of that... Uh, and then with, with, with her scene, just asking, like, I want you to stop seeing her. He's, he's angry, but he's like, fine. What happens next in a shocking turn of events, Danny Aiello's mother recovers from death's door. It happens at the same time, I guess, when Cher and Nicolas Cage really fall in love with each other. Because now that Danny Aiello no longer really has a woman to his name, his, his mother has a purpose again. And he describes it as she was just laying in bed, and then she gets up goes in the kitchen and just starts cooking for everyone. <laughs> like the most <laughs> Italian mother thing to do. Starts cooking for me, starts keeping cooking for the grievers, starts cooking for herself. She she just recovered, so I'm coming home. Yeah, I think it's really funny how the movie does take place over three days. He leaves for Sicily the first night, 
and he's back less than 48 hours later. And it's not like a short flight. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like He must have been there for, I don't know, maybe one full day? And what is it, up with the sudden... Suddenly, like his character is very forgetful. Like, he forgets his suitcases three times. Yeah. Once at like the baggage claim or checking into the cat, and then once at like Cher's house. Or, I don't know. It's just... What? <laughs> they just added that extra beat to his character for no yeah. reason. I feel like that might just be him being forgetful or him just assuming the world is going to take care of him. That's uh, yeah. Like, when yeah. you take a cab, you sort of assume that the, the driver is going to, like, pick him up and put him in the trunk or in the back seat or whatever, but he just tells the cabbie where he wants to go, and the cab just gets in and just starts driving away. Yeah. It's an example of just how much he needs to be mothered. Right. That he, he can't even keep track of really the only thing he's carrying like when you're leaving an airport you're like do i have my bags like if the answer to that question is no then like you have to go find your bags <laughs> and he doesn't forget them once or twice but three times in every scene in the movie he's constantly being babied you know he wants to fish here says no it's an oily fish tonight you're gonna get sick on the plane he's boarding the plane oh here i got some gum so that your ears pop on the plane so he is incapable of living by himself <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's a 40-something-year-old man who can't do anything on his own. He always needs some Italian woman <laughs> telling him how to get by. Don't we all? Hey, Mike, did you notice that in Cage's apartment he has a couple canaries? You're kidding me. He uh, has yeah. two a, yellow a canaries. It's a Cage connection to Birdie. <laughs> I saw those, and I flipped out. I was, I was sort of hoping even though they're in two different time periods and different places in the world, <laughs> that you know, it was Birdie's birds that somehow got into his character's ownership. Like, it seems like all he has in his apartment is that record player, and he's got a couple canaries. Like, it's, <laughs> like there's, there's not a lot to look at in his apartment. I just saw a couple canaries, and I just loved it. It's almost like his cell, though, you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's, he's really put himself in a purgatory, so, like, yeah. it's just, like, the bare essentials. You got your opera, you got your wine and cheese, and your birds, and that's, that's all he gets. Yeah, and even his, uh, his apartment is upstairs of the bakery, so he yeah, doesn't uh, leave that corner. That's that's his whole life. He works down below, and he just goes upstairs to just wait, basically just wait until he has to go back to work. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is uh, the, the bakery is called uh, Camareri Brothers, assuming it's family business that he and his brother used to own, and he just works there now. Just like Cher's family, his family is always around. Danny Aiello was not the only person that Nicolas Cage had a falling out with. He also had serious issues with his mom. And so he's in this family setting, but unlike Cher's family, where everybody sort of gets along and spends all the time together, there's a real sort of disconnect. And I don't know if that says anything about the family, or if that's just a difference between the two, or if this is even worth talking about. But that's one of the major differences between these two seemingly otherwise close-knit Italian families. It's interesting that you never hear of a father figure on their side of the family, right? It's just the mother. So one can assume the lack of a father figure is what drove, the, split the family, perhaps, or, you know, caused Nicolas Cage to act in one direction while uh, Danny Aiello went and became more of like a mama's boy. Uh, maybe we're seeing this is what the father was more like, more of this rage-filled passion guy or something like that. It's an interesting contrast because it just it shows that families are super 
tight and close-knit, or they don't talk to each other, right? It's just like a stark contrast. It's just interesting that Nicolas Cage hates his brother, yet he doesn't take the brother off of the signage, you know? He's willing to leave it up there for whatever reason, you know, maybe in the back of his head to one day he's in denial. One day he might even run this place with his brother again. I mean, family is important, and that's sort of the one of the big morals of the movie, which is why it's so fitting that the last scene of the movie is pretty much every character that we've met so far almost coming together in the Castorini kitchen over oatmeal, over breakfast. Everything comes out, every, like all the conflicts are resolved, everybody is there, and there's really no other way to end a movie like this about this Italian family than with a gathering over food. Yeah, and I love how Ronnie just invites himself over. <laughs> That morning, he's just like, I wanted to meet the family. Like, he is just, you know, (laughs) they are rushing this relationship, you know. Forget about taking it slow. But he's like, you know, it's about time I met your parents, all right? We've been seeing each other for two days. Yeah, I love how Cher wants to have none of it. And he's just, yes, Mrs. Castorini, I would love some oatmeal. And just sits down and just waits for her to serve him. He's just in it. And I think that's really another major difference between him and Danny Aiello that Cher's dad hated, or did, at least didn't like Danny Aiello, Nicolas Cage's willingness to basically be a part of the family and treat Cher with the, the love that she deserves was really all uh, Cher's dad needed to approve of this guy. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the, the just the simple just a simple gesture of coming over and, and being comfortable and and sharing a meal. You know, it's just like showing the respect to his daughter and everything. Like you just get the sense that his brother never came over to the house and like never made any good conversation with the father. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed like he was never even around so much. So yeah, yeah, yeah even when uh, when Cher tells her father that she's engaged he's like to who and he's surprised when he hears uh johnny camareri yeah i can can imagine he's just never around ronnie is there with Cher's entire family and johnny comes back from italy is, is sort of surprised to see ronnie there but says i can't marry you my, my mother's recovered i can't marry you and she's about to basically you know break up with him dump him and their engagement and, and he beats her to the punch yeah, I, as much as I've seen this, that part always makes me smile because it's such a great reversal in the story. You know, like the last person, like this was the moment of like, this is it. This is the moment of fate. And like the last person you expect to call it off, like <laughs> comes in and, and does just that. It, it's just shocking to her. She's like caught so off guard. And then she's like, you can't cancel the wedding. <laughs> she's like, I'm yeah. like, what are you doing? You're, you're <laughs> out of it. You're out of it. And you're getting yourself back in. And everyone, you can see everyone going like shut up shut up but she she knows what she's doing and she gives him back the awkward pinky ring engagement ring which she wears on her middle finger for some reason as soon as she gives the ring back then nicholas cage proposes to share and he again doesn't have a ring so he has to borrow the same ring and so she in in the span of probably two minutes (laughs) has worn that ring twice to signify engagements with two different men who also just happen to be brothers. Like it's <laughs> it's such a it's such, it's such a journey for that ring to take. <laughs> yeah, next stop Mordor. At the end of the movie, uh, Nicolas Cage says she loves me. As soon as he said she loves me, all I could think was ooh ooh ooh. <laughs> Peggy um, Sue got married. A <laughs> little bit of Peggy Sue, but yeah, I mean that, and then that's just sort of how it ends. And somebody just says at the end, like I'm confused. <laughs> I think that's sort of the audience. Like, it's just sort of echoing, like, what did we just watch? Like, it, it's not the ending you... Like, it's sort of the ending you expect, 
but it's not the build-up that you expect to take us there. Yeah, it's a goofily happy ending, but it's perfect. Yeah, I love it, but it is almost like, okay, let's wrap everything up in one scene. <laughs> like, <laughs> they got lucky and pulled it off. I mean, I just think it's a testament to acting and directing, and I mean, this, this little scene in and of itself is just like, there's so much nuance, you know? The levels of emotions go up and down so quickly and I don't know I, I, I just love it and I especially love how dumbfounded Danny Aiello is at the end sort of just sitting on a stool in the corner like the grandfather like just entirely confused as to what's happening one of the real cage connections throughout the movies that we've seen are sort of like sudden abrupt endings mm. that are like a little weird but they all sort of work like this doesn't end like abruptly but it just well, like that, that just, that's the last thing we need to wrap up, so like, let's just end it. But I feel like a lot of the movies we've been watching and talking about recently have this kind of strange, jarring, in one way or another, ending. I think what it is, a lot of times, it's been a, a drastic shift in the tone. Like, the, the second or third acts have been, like, really heavy dramatically, or, you know, there's been a really dramatic conclusion, and then suddenly there's, like, this extra scene or extra shot that just flips the entire thing on its head, you know, and it just goes from drama to comedy or vice versa. And, and they sort of pull that off here, you know, the, the dinner scene is pretty tense, and I think it's supposed to play as tense, and they want to make sure that they go out on, an, on like, a genuine high note. So they really ramp it up right at the end there. And it's a little jarring, but again, I think it works. Yeah, I think it works too. In terms of cage connections for cast and crew, there, there's not a lot of crossover, doesn't look like. The director, Norman Jewison, the writer, John Patrick Shanley, the, the main actors and actresses, I can't find any that really cross over or cross paths with Cage again for the rest of his career. Do you, are there any that you know of that I missed? I'm not aware of any, no. It's just a shame that he never got to work with Cher again, because like there's real chemistry with them i love share I mean, like she really had a, she was on a roll in the 80s she did a lot of like at least three really good movies that i liked and sort of just faded away after that and just focused on the music again but i would have loved to see these two do something you know a couple of years ago i don't know about today but definitely a couple of years ago it's interesting i read that share refused to do the film without nicholas cage they, oh uh, yeah, they didn't like the screen test, but Cher said that she'd drop out if they didn't pick Nicolas Cage for that role. That, wow. that is kind of a Cage connection because they didn't want him for the role of Peggy Sue, got married either, and they sort of, you know, a lot was riding on his choice of how he played that character, and they gave him a shot, but he was definitely not their first choice for that either. But he gets these shots, and he hits him out of the park. I don't have anything else to say about this movie. Uh, Eric, anything, any last thoughts? No, I just... I really enjoyed this movie more than I thought I would the first time I saw it, watching it again a couple nights ago. It just solidified it as one of my favorite movies. It's really good. It, it won Academy Awards as Yeah, well, it won th- right? three Oscar wins. So we're not the only ones that think it's good. <laughs> it's got a pretty decent reputation on its own. I know Cage is known like for this movie, but I'm curious how many people nowadays have seen it. You know, People that know Cage's reputation... For the stuff he's done recently. I think if they, this is one of those movies that you go back and watch and you see that he's definitely doing something special. He's a really good actor. I definitely inhabited this role for me. The Oscars at one. Cher won Best Actress. Olympia Dukakis won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, it won Best Screenplay, Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for <laughs> and lost uh, Best Picture and Best Director and also Best Supporting Actor. Nicolas Cage was nominated for a Golden Globe, but not anything at the actual Academy Awards. 
so yeah, so that's pretty much that's Moonstruck. The next time on the podcast, we have Vampire's Kiss. So that should be a really fun episode to do. But it was great basically meeting Eric here on, <laughs> yeah. on Cage Club. Yeah, same here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I uh, had a great time. I'd love to come back. Great. But for Eric Anderson and for Mike Manzi, I'm Joey Lewandowski. Check out cageclub.me to read all of our reviews, to find all of our podcasts, to find out how to follow us on Twitter. Um, that was Moonstruck. And catch us next time on Cage Club. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing the Hearts will play tippy tippy tay tippy tippy tay like a guitar and then